Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 14. This morning we're continuing the second part of our Genesis study entitled Patriarch and Promises. And this morning we're going to continue looking at our first patriarch of the faith, Abraham. And as we've studied about Abraham over the past couple of weeks, we know there was nothing special about him according to the world's standard of greatness. But God saw something in him and God would birth the people group from him. Abraham left his homeland, if you recall, and he traveled into the land of Canaan, the land of promise as directed by God. And God would make this huge promise to him. He told him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. He also said, those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth would be blessed by you. So last week we studied about Abraham, how, how he would have a momentary um, lapse of judgment. Um, the Lord told him to go into the promised land, and, he, and, and in that promised land, the Lord would tell him that he was going to become a great nation. Well, we, when he gets there, again, we remember this, um, he had um, no children, and his wife was barren. He also gets into the promised land, and there's not enough food to feed his family. So what does Abraham do? He loads up the wagons, and he heads to Egypt. And we know what happened in the land of Egypt. While he was in the land of Egypt, again, he would make some, some, some critical decisions that would not only affect him, but it would also affect his wife, Sarah. But what eventually would happen to Abraham is Abraham would get back on track. He would leave the place of sin and he would return to the land of promise. And when he returned to the land, he would go to the place of worship, to that place as he entered the land for the first time, he established an altar for worship. He returned to that exact place, and he worshiped the Lord again. Folks, our sins, as we looked at last week, sometimes lead us to our own Egypt. But like Abraham, we can leave our sins behind and get back in right standing with God. So not only did Abraham return to the place of worship, but last week we also looked at what happened once he returned into the land of Canaan. If you recall, um, Scripture tells us in Genesis 13 that, that Abraham's numbers increased, Lot's numbers increased. Both of them became very prosperous in the land. And, and in fact, they became so prosperous that the herdsmen for both men began to bicker and began to fight. And so what Abraham told Lot to do, he said, look out over all of the land and choose for yourself where you would go. And so he looks out and he looks down at the Jordan Valley and sees that, man, that it's a beautiful place. And he chooses for himself the Jordan Valley. So he goes down into the Jordan Valley. You remember what's in Jordan Valley, right? It's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And Abraham then chooses Hebron. And when he gets into Hebron, what does he do? Man, he builds another altar and he begins to worship the Lord there. So what we did last week is we looked at Abraham's, the consequences for Abraham's sin. And what we're going to look at this morning is the consequences of Lot's sin. Our main point this morning is we are in a spiritual battle. We are not only in a battle, but we are in a spiritual war, aren't we? Let's look at our first point this morning. The battle between good and evil. Scripture is clear. There are multiple wars that are going on simultaneously. 
Gary Brown outlined it like this, we are at war against the flesh. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Brown went on to say, where the world accepts sin and the desires of the flesh as normal, genetic, or at worst, a psychological disorder, Scripture teaches that the only proper response to our sin nature is to put it to death. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off, right? As believers, we must fight to be holy, and this includes not only our outward actions, but also our inward desires. Christ said that even if you look on a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery. So we are at war with the flesh. We are also at war against the world. Paul wrote in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is constantly trying to get us to conform to it, isn't it? It wants us to think like it, to dress like it, to worship like it, and to change like it. It wants us to follow after it instead of after the Word of God. God's Word, according to the world, is outdated. As the world changes and redefines things, it is trying to get us as believers to do the same and even trying to force us to change the Word of God to meet the standards of this world. We're seeing that happen throughout our land, throughout North America, and really throughout the world. Scripture says in James 4.4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we are at war with the flesh. As believers, we are at war with the world. And we all know this, we're also at war with the devil. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians, these words found in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You and I are at war with the devil. You know, so many people in this world today say that the devil is not real. As believers, we know the devil is real. In fact, Scripture is abundantly clear. Jesus was abundantly clear. Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief, meaning the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is out to destroy every single one of us in this room and every single person outside the doors of this world. To help us as we go to battle, Paul instructed us to put on the full armor of God. In fact, we do this so that when the devil um, shoots those fiery darts our way, the full armor of God will be able to deflect those fiery darts. This morning, what we're going to read about is the first recorded war in the Bible. This would be a physical war, but it would come to Abraham because of Lot, because of Lot's choices, because ultimately because of Lot's sinful choice. So notice our next point. It is this, the battle in the promised land. In the first part of Genesis chapter 14, we read of a war within the land. And to save you 
from having to listen to me butcher a lot of names. Um, I'm going to summarize the first few verses of Genesis chapter 14. So for 12 years, there were five kings that served a king by the name of Kedlomir. They served him, meaning they probably had to pay some um, taxes to him and probably had to give him some of their goods. Um, and, and Ketelomir, he was one of four kings that were apparently bullies in the land. So in the 13th year, these five kings that were being bullied decided that they were going to rebel against these four stronger kings. And the five kings that rebelled were the king of Sodom, Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zibium, and the king of Zor. In the 14th year, these stronger kings had had enough of these weaker kings, so they decided that they were going to go to war against these five kings. So what these four kings did is they literally swept across the land, and they went into these cities, and they destroyed the cities, they pillaged all of their goods, and they took captive all of the people within those cities, and they brought them back to their homeland. And so that leads us to, to the next part of our scripture. One of those people that was captured would be Lot and Lot's family. So let's read together what happened as a result of Lot being captured. Um, so we're going to read Genesis 14, verses 13 to si through 16 to begin with. We read, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. You know, it amazes me what Abraham does here. I mean, he, 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 he gathers together 318 trained men. Now, this is the first recorded war in all of Scripture. But obviously, there must have been wars at some point, um, or Abraham would not have had 318 men trained, ready to go to battle. And what we see in Abraham is we see a general, don't we? We see this man who we've seen as a man of peace turn into a man of war. I love what John Henry, how he summarizes it here. He says, Abraham assembled his team, and like Patton or an Eisenhower or some other great military general, he went to war. And with 318 men, Abraham would defeat those four kings. He'd return the people and their possessions back into the land. And again, this is the first war mentioned in the Bible. Now, we know how this war started, right? We know it began because of a bully king taking advantage of some weaker kings. But what I want us to do for the next few moments is I want us to look at the, the, the greater reason for Abraham getting involved in this war. So notice our first point, our sub-point, it's this. Lot was in trouble. When Abraham and Lot went their separate ways, Abraham chose the region of Hebron. And there he would establish a house of worship. He would establish an altar for worship. But Lot chose the Jordan Valley. And within that valley 
were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were depraved. They were terribly wicked in the eyes of God. In fact, we read last week in Genesis 13, 12 through 13, we read Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We know what will come of those cities, don't we? They will be literally wiped off the face of the earth in a few chapters from now. Lot had to know about those cities. He had to know about the depravity within those cities. Ultimately, I believe that Lot was attracted to those cities because of the nightlife within them. Man, he liked to be that close to all of that, um, that, that sinfulness, really, if you want to get down to it. Folks, when you live near sin, you can expect to experience the downfall that comes because of sin, right? You know the saying, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Lot played with fire. He was playing in the shadows of those sinful, wretched cities. And he did get burned. And as a result, he was taken captive as well as his family and all of his possessions. Do you ever find yourself getting burned because of the fire that you played with? Because you got a little bit too close to sin? I think we all have, haven't we? We all have been burned because of our own choices, because of our sinful choices. I believe the Lord was trying to wake Lot up. That leads us to our second sub-point. I really believe that Lot was being disciplined as he was taken into captivity. Lot was not perfect, but he would be described by Peter as being righteous. In 2 Peter 2, 7 we read, And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Lot was a saved man, but he was far from a perfect man. I truly believe that what the Lord allowed Lot to go through was intended to be a time of discipline. We all know that God disciplines those he loves, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, we read um, verses 5 and 6, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. No one likes to be disciplined, but I think we all have learned from it. How many of you ever learned from your discipline? How many of you men in this room ever learned from the Board of Education? Yeah, I think we all have. I know that I did. When I was in the second grade, we had a fire drill. We left the classroom, we went outside, and we lined up along the concrete. And for some reason, we were just feet away from the building, I guess since it was a fire drill, not the real thing. But, but um, for some reason, I felt that I needed to um, get rid of the saliva that had built up in my mouth. So I spit on the ground. Teacher comes down, and, and, and I'm sure she said just as nicely as she could, Chad, if you spit again, I'm going to give you a spanking. Well, guess what I did? I spit again. Guess what she did? For the first time in my life, she introduced me to the Board of Education. I wish I could tell you that I learned from that mistake, but I didn't. 
Sometimes it takes more than one instance of discipline to truly learn from our mistakes. When I was in the sixth grade, um, we had just moved um, um, into uh, an, uh, um, to, to Wiley. I grew up in Plano, um, and, and um, in between the, my sixth grade semester, we moved to Wiley. And I think it was like the second or third grade, um, I was in the cafeteria, and um, I got into a different form of a spinning competition. Um, Some of you may uh, know the terminology gleeking. It's basically spinning from your salivary glands underneath your tongue. And and back in the sixth grade, when I was about 12 years old, apparently that was a thing. And so I got into this spinning competition in the cafeteria with another boy. Well, it didn't take long until Coach James, female coach, she came and grabbed me and this other kid named Philip by the arms, drug us out of the cafeteria, and took us to her office. And I will never forget, inside that office, she yelled at us, she screamed at us, and she gave us some licks. In fact, she said, I want you to find your birthday on the calendar. So I flipped to my birthday. She told me to bend down and touch my toes. So I bend down and touch my toes. I'm supposed to be looking in front of me, but I actually look behind me. This lady had about two steps behind me. She has the board in her hand. She takes a step and she lit me up. She did that three times. Guess what? I never spit in school again. I wish I could tell you that I never got licks again, but I did, but I never got them again for spitting. For Lot... He should have learned from his mistakes, but he did not. I read, we can learn in the sanctuary or learn in the storm. The choice is up to us. For Lot, he finds himself living in a storm. He has lost everything. He and his family have been taken captive. Everything he owns has been stolen by this wicked king, and now he faces enslavement or maybe even death within their cities. Folks, Lot got lucky, didn't he? God would protect him, and Abraham would come and rescue him. Understand, help is always one call away, always one prayer away. When you find yourself trapped because of your sin, turn to the Lord, seek his forgiveness, and allow him to lead you from that place of sin back into the place of worship. For Lot, the help would come in the form of a military army of 318 men. You and I can know that we too can be victorious when we find ourselves caught up in the battles of this world. We can win the fleshly battle. We can win the worldly battle. We can win the spiritual battle. We can be victorious because we know the battle belongs to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15, we read, And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. Church, when the devil attacks, turn to the Lord. When the flesh cries out for some grotesque sin, turn to the Lord. 
when the world tries to force us to change our vernacular or the narrative, turn to the Lord and His Word. Choose wisely where you live, where you work, and the friend groups that you hang out with. So Abraham would go and fight Lot's battle for him. And as he comes back from this tremendous military victory, we're told in Scripture that he encounters two kings when he returns into the land. One king would be the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom represents the world. The other king would be the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king that represents the Lord. So what I want us to look at next is I want us to look at a tale of two kings. So up until this point, there have been nine kings that have been mentioned. I haven't mentioned all of those, their names, but I have made reference to there being nine kings. And what we're about to be introduced to now is a tenth king. And this king is one of the most mysterious men in all of the Bible. His name is only mentioned a handful of times, and the words spoken by him are very few but profound. So we see in this king that he is a king of righteousness. So notice what Genesis 14, 17 through 20 says about this king. After his return from the defeat of Ketelomir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek was a righteous man. He was a foreshadow of of Christ. He provided for Abraham a picture of, of, of the Messiah that would come to the land. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read a little bit more about who Melchizedek was. We read, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and told him, Abraham, uh, and, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. forever. Abraham knew right away that there was something special about Melchizedek. This man of God held two titles. First of all, he was the king of Salem. Salem um, is where modern-day Jerusalem is today. So he's the king of Salem, the king of peace, and he was also the king of righteousness. He was the priest of the Lord. Fast forward several hundred years to when the Levitical priesthood was established and the law was given. Under the law given to Moses, the same person could not be both king and priest. If you remember, a priest came from the tribe of Levi, and a king came from the tribe of Judah. Melchizedek 
would be both king and priest. And we know that Jesus would also be both king and priest. The psalmist declares that Jesus would follow the priestly lineage of Melchizedek. We read in Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love how, how, how Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Abraham would see in Melchizedek a picture of the king who would come and take away the sins of all the people. He saw in, 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 in Melchizedek um, the Lord Jesus Christ or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of this, out of nowhere, we're told that Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything that he had and he gave it to Melchizedek. You know, this truly was a picture of worship. His giving was an extension of his worshiping of the Lord. And that is what our giving should be as well. We give because it is an extension of our worship. So we see next here that there was also a wicked king that would greet Abraham. Let's look at this wicked king. In verses 21 through 24, we read, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten." And the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Now we know nothing about the king of Sodom, but we know quite a bit about the city that he led. Under his leadership, that city would be a city um, of sexual immorality, a place of homosexuality. The people were prideful, it was a city full of idols and pagan worship. In fact, Ezekiel declared these words in Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 through 51 about this wretched city. He said, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Genesis 19 tells us about this city. It was such a wretched city that not even the angels of God were safe there. It was so depraved that God could not even find 10 righteous people within that city. It would be a city that God would make an example of throughout all of the ages. He would destroy it along with Gomorrah and wipe them off the face of the earth. Now what Abraham is experiencing here is a spiritual battle. This wicked king is wanting to give Abraham the spoils that are found within that city. So there's no telling what kind of, 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 of idols he was trying to give to Abraham or what kind of, of, of depraved things he was trying to give to Abraham. We have no idea what exactly it was that he was trying to give him, but what we do know is how Abraham responded to that king. He said, I want nothing from you. You know why he didn't want anything 
from him because he didn't want anything associated with this world coming into his home and tainting his home. You know, some people would, 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 don't have a problem with accepting the things of this world. They say, man, the devil has had that money long enough, right? Some of you may have said something similar to that. But I don't know about you, but I don't want what I have to be associated with the evils of this world. But I want it to be known that everything the Lord has blessed me and my family with is from the Lord and not from the world. Abraham did not want a thing from that wicked king. Folks, there comes a time in our lives when we must decide which two ruling kings we're going to give our allegiance to. We're either going to give our allegiance to the king of this world, the king of Sodom, the devil, or we're going to give our allegiance over to the king of of the universe, our heavenly father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which king has your allegiance this morning? I pray it's the king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you follow after King Jesus. If you do not, then I want to invite you this morning to surrender your life over to Jesus and make him king and savior of your life. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, we read, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Come to Jesus if you don't know Jesus. In closing, as I said earlier, when the devil attacks, turn to the Lord. When the flesh cries out for satisfaction, turn to the Lord. When the world tries to force us to change our vernacular and our narrative, turn to the Lord. We are in a battle, but we know this battle that we are in belongs to the Lord, and he will give us victorious in the midst of it. If you don't know the Lord, I want to invite you this morning to come. This morning, as we enter into this time of invitation, you may just need to spend the next few moments and just um, allow the Lord to speak to you. And maybe there's, you know, we looked at this a little bit last week. Maybe you find yourself um, still kind of um, in in Egypt, in um, caught up in a particular sin that you need to let go of and return to the Lord. You may be here this morning, and 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 man, you you you've got. Part of your life is, uh, you know, dabbling in the things of this world. The other part is dabbling in the things of God. The Lord says he doesn't like a lukewarm Christian. He wants us to be on fire for him or not at all. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you about this morning, but let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in closing prayer. Our worship team is going to lead us in a time of invitation. If there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus, just thanking you again for your word and the promises found within your word. Father, we thank you for stories like this. Father, stories where where we see the effects of our poor choices on full display. We know Lot chose poorly. He chose to live within um, yards of, um, of, of hell, really. He chose to find himself Um, immersed in the things of this world. And as a result of that, he was taken captive. But Father, we thank you that he didn't remain a captive. We thank you that, that you would rescue him 
and that you would deliver him and that you would provide for him uh, a means by which he could be corrected. Father, I pray this morning that there's someone in this room that, that finds themselves dabbling in the things of this world, that today will be the day that they get right with you. I pray that if there's someone here this morning that does not have a relationship with you, that today will be the day of their salvation. Father, just move now during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's a decision you need to make, you come.